Would you please take your Bibles, God's holy, pure, perfect, and oh-so-powerful word, and open it to the book of Proverbs as we continue to study it or pick back up our study of it topically. So far, we've talked about God's call for us and desire for us to be wise in every word that we speak, realizing each and every one is either life-depleting or life-giving. That we're to be wise in our friendships, who we choose, and what we base our friendships on, that they would replicate our friendship with God. That we be humble people, that we are aware of the, the dangers and the harm of pride in our life in any way, and that we continue to seek the grace of God toward the humble. That we be wise in our marriages, both as husbands and as wives, that there is a worth of the fear of the Lord in a home not focused on charm or beauty, but on the fear of the Lord and harmony. And then just before I left for vacation, God's wisdom for us that often comes through human mouths, and that is rebukes and reproofs and correction as part of the way God sanctifies us. Today we'll pick up the... Uh, theme again, this time of parenting, of a home that honors and glorifies God and of God's plan and principles for family, which is intended ultimately to be generation after generation. So when we talk about family, there's a huge range of emotions. I would guess all of you felt some of them either when you heard it announced or even as we've begun to enter that topic now. Some warm and fond feelings because family's been an incredible blessing in your life. But for others, perhaps far too many, terrible and painful feelings because family has been far more bad than good. Familial wounds run deep and long. Raising children is possibly the hardest thing that human beings do in this life. It takes an incredible amount of work for some 6,500 days, 150,000 hours. And that's if you're able to get them out of your home at age 18. <laughs> some of them gladly, others not so easily. It's as if God says to us, I'm going to give you this incredible image created, or life created in my image. And let's together shape and mold and teach and train it so that after one-fourth of its life, it can enjoy maximally the rest of its life and be used by God for his purposes and his glory. Few things affect our hearts more, and Proverbs expresses that repeatedly. Proverbs 10.1, so Proverbs 1 through, chapters 1 through 9 are this huge introduction, which began back in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 1 with, my son, listen to your father's instruction and to your mother's teaching. And now, after the nine-chapter intro, first words before Solomon gets into, uh, and again, someone else may have put all these Proverbs together uh, following Solomon, or this may have been his First one that he wanted to touch on is he began then to list out his hundreds and hundreds of Proverbs. But he just makes the simple but profound point that the choices and the way that our children live long after 
being in our home has a profound impact on really all of our lives for the rest of our lives. 10.1 says that a wise son makes a glad father, and very simply, a foolish son is a sorrow to his mother. Not that fathers feel greater joy than mothers do or that mothers feel greater pain than fathers do, but that both parents experience very deep uh, emotions and feelings from whatever way their children go after they have invested so much in them. And I was just struck by how many times Proverbs notes that. So we're just going to glance at these very, very quickly. Here's other Proverbs that emphasize the gladness uh, for parents. And notice that every single time wisdom is mentioned, every single time that a parent is glad, rejoicing, thrilled, it is because there is wisdom being lived out by their children. And then conversely, a number of Proverbs that note the sorrow and the heartache uh, and every one of these is tied to folly. If you can go to the next slide. You see again, he who sires a fool gets himself sorrow. A foolish son is a grief, bitterness to the one who bore him. A foolish son is a ruin to his family, to his parents. And he shames them when he makes poor choices. So Bob Beasley says, the book of Proverbs consistently repeats a warning to parents. Something will be broken in your home either your child's will or your heart. And if it is the latter, both you and your child will feel the pain. But God is kind to us in warning us, in telling us this, in laying it out, in giving us a book like Proverbs to help us navigate and walk through this. But in essence, he is calling, motivating us in all of these Proverbs about gladness and sorrow to invest ourselves carefully and faithfully in what is a very long, very hard, but a very beautiful process. Now, Sermon on Marriage doesn't seem to apply to everyone in the congregation. Some of you will never have children. Some of you don't yet. And some of you are glad to be done with them. Jokingly, I hope. But, if you listen carefully, there are principles in here no matter what place in life that you have. The basics of disciple making, the importance of self-control and discipline, many, many other things as well. So listen on that behalf, but let it also be a means by which we as a whole church are encouraged, urged to pray for this whole process. So we have 180-ish total adults. That number changes every Sunday, every week, both coming and going. But 180-ish, and about 75 of those, 180, are currently heavily entrenched in raising their children in the fear and the instruction or the discipline of the Lord. Out of our body of about 310 total humans, there's over 130 who are children. In other words, if we're not careful, they're going to outnumber us soon, and then we're going to get a Lord of the Flies situation. <laughs> it's interesting, thank you, Ben. It's interesting how even the secular world recognizes the human heart in that way. And single parents, though most of the Proverbs speak of both, God does grant extra measures of grace for you who face an incredibly harder task to raise your children. And just briefly, 
uh, a word, we can always think of exceptions to all these Proverbs. And again, Proverbs are not promises. They're principles. A general way in which it works is a good home, a godly home, wise parents will produce good kids, wise kids, family. So therefore, the logic or rationale Proverbs is giving us is the more conformed our family is to God's design and what he lays out from chapter 1 to chapter 31 of Proverbs and really in the rest of his word, the better your odds of godly children. But there are no guarantees. The folly of our own hearts, the schemes of the devil and his incredible work and attack on the young, and the alluring but empty world and its pressures that it swarms our children with are very, very powerful currents that our children have to swim against and not be swept away by. Sometimes, yes, the results are the opposite of what we seem to see in Proverbs, but they are part of God's providential working. What he calls us to do is to be as faithful in what he has given us as parents to do and as a church to do as we can be in his power. God shapes people profoundly through family, but God shapes people profoundly in spite of family. He is not limited by family. He often uses it, but he often uses, and I'm sure we could hear many a testimony on that, of other things as well. It's just good here, perhaps, to hear Proverbs 24, 3 to 4 again. I think this is the third introduction in Proverbs that I've used this, but it's just such, for me, a vivid word picture. When a house, a home, a family is built, established, when everything about all that's going on inside those four walls are filled with God's wisdom, understanding, and knowledge, then what's going to flow out of that as a general principle are precious and pleasant riches. And if you want to feel trepidation about today's topic, try having a couple of your adult children sitting in the room while you tell everybody else how to parent. I'm thankful it's the word that's doing it and not me, uh, but I won't look at them the whole time. <laughs> Too many eye rolls. Certainly, uh, there are many here more qualified than I by credentials to preach this, but this is where God has us. And so much, I really had to fight so much about parenting to, to touch on, just trying to stay within our confines of what Proverbs seems to primarily emphasize. So let's now hear what God has to say and let's ask him for his help. Father, again, we pray as Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, sanctify us, parents and families, in truth, for your word is truth. So please sanctify us through these proverbs that teach us the privilege to know you through faith in your son and to live according to the wisdom of your ways, no matter what's going on in our world around us. May each of these proverbs be living and active words of God breathed into us, both now and long after this morning, deep into our hearts, working and working and working to shape us ever more into the glorious image of your Son, we ask in his name. Amen. So, 
There's probably 50-some Proverbs that I pulled out as I worked back through chapters 1 through 31 that have something to do with family. In one sense, you can say every verse in Proverbs is about family in the sense that that's what it's given to. A family for is to guide parents and give them a curriculum and a guideline for it. But there are a few that particularly stood out uh, that I just want to briefly highlight, but I think set the foundation for uh, everything else that Proverbs has to say about parenting. So first of all, Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has, and one there, since the second half of the verse references children, we might be able to just simply read, in the fear of the Lord, a parent, a mother, a father, has strong confidence. In other words, fear of the Lord strengthens our faith and our devotion to God's plan and his way and holds us to it no matter what other pressures are coming upon us. And the result, the benefit of that, it is that his children will have a refuge, a, a stronghold for their whole life as well. The most secure, safe home you can provide is one filled with a holy reverence for our God. That your children feel it's palpable in the home. You want to be a good parent? Hold God in highest reverence. And he will work through that more powerfully than any other tactic you use. This has been, the fear of the Lord has been a dominating theme of Proverbs. It's all over in the book of Psalms. It's laced throughout the New Testament as well. And it has all kinds of implications. But, but overall, we might just say, drives us to live our lives in the face of God under his eye, to be aware of it, to be dependent upon it, to seek him moment by moment for wisdom and strength and grace to do what we know is impossible to do apart from him. Remember Psalm 127, 127, 1. 127 and 128 are both family. Psalms talk a lot about children and family. Each one opens with an emphasis uh, on the Lord being the central, dominating feature, facet, and focus of it. More than you feel your fear, your children's opposition, or what they'll turn out like, or what others will think of you or them, tremble at God's assessment of your huge responsibility that he's given you. Perhaps the scariest aspect of parenting is that we are conveying to our children, perhaps more powerfully than any other thing, how to think about God, and how to live in light of that. What your children hear and see and experience about who God is, about trusting him and loving him and fearing him, about his word, about his church, about his will, about his kingdom, will not only impact them while they're in their home, God's designed it to impact them for the rest of their life, all of their days all of their prolonged days. All this and much more is formed largely by what your children see in you. So the best parenting strategy is fear God with all your heart. Grow in that. That your children may see it, feel it, hear it, know it. Second, I think profound proverb is chapter 20, verse 7. 
the righteous, and we could add here again because children is in the second half of the verse. The righteous father, the righteous mother who walk in integrity. That's blessing on their children. Proverbs 17, 6 reminds us in a world where many of us are shamed by our fathers that the glory of children is to be, by God's design, their fathers and mothers. This is God's overarching design that parents would be God-fearing, upright, holy, godly men and women. That that they focus on even more than on parenting. That they are full of his nature and his character. That they are men and women who are genuine and real in their faith and it runs deep. That they're not hypocrites with duplicity where what they do in public and what they do in private are two very different things. You want to be a good parent? You want to leave your child a legacy? Walk in integrity. All kinds of implications for this. Here's a couple, rely on a couple old preachers to help us. Spurgeon, let us watch that we never undo with our hands what we say with our tongues. We don't raise our children by the mantra, do as I say, not as I do. We do it by the mantra that Paul gives us. Be imitators of me as you see me imitating Christ. Matthew 10, Jesus said, it is enough. Here's the goal of disciple making, which is what parenting is. It is enough for the disciple, the child, to become like his teacher. J.C. Ryle, he that preaches to his children what he does not practice is working a work that never goes forward. Our children will seldom learn habits which they see you despise or not put value in, or will they walk in paths in which you do not walk in yourself. So the maxim is true that there is more caught than taught, and that how our children see us living the life of following Christ will impact and shape them more profoundly than what they hear. Though it's God's intention to use both. Third, profound proverb, and both of these last two come out of Proverbs 22. A framework and a foundation really for everything else that's being stated in Proverbs. Proverbs 22:15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child. Now, just like each child or each person is unique, so it is with folly in the heart. There's a unique amount there's a unique ways that they express it, unique times that they express it, how deeply ingrained and how hard it is to train and discipline them that out of it will vary and be very different. But the overarching point is, as Salvaggio summarizes, left entirely to themselves, children will follow harmful paths. Unless they are given discipline, they will not gain discipline. Their lives will grow increasingly dominated by living for themselves. And that's really what Paul captures to Timothy when he's talking about the last days. And certainly we feel like we could be living in those. People will be. And now just look at all of these things and think of them in light of parenting. 
People will become, as they become adults, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, and then an overarching one which takes away the fear of the Lord and the love of the Lord. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Parenting is a continual turning, 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 turning of a child in a different direction than they naturally want to go. And the fourth proverb tied in with this, in order to carry out what Proverbs 22:15 calls for, we are to train up a child in the way that he should go. Let's take just that first half and spend some time there. And in about seven minutes, we'll come back to the second half of that proverb. This is where Ephesians 6.4 really summarizes it as well. Bring them up, which is the same idea of training them in. And now Paul lays it out in two ways, which is really how Proverbs is interwoven all the way through. The discipline of the Lord and the instruction of the Lord. The word and how it's lived out uh, over our flesh. Now, this training idea, and we won't read all of these verses, but I just wanted to see you you to visually see it's also what God has designed the word to do is to train in righteousness and it's also what God even intends grace and salvation to do is to train us to renounce ungodliness so parents the word and grace this uh, triune working all together to engrave as deeply and transform as profoundly we could just summarize that training involves telling and showing and then correcting as it's being applied. It involves instruction and example, and then the putting into practice, and maybe teaching someone who's never driven before to drive is an example that's helpful there. It's explaining it, modeling it, and then lots of repetition. It's teaching our children the disciplines of life that are critical to living wisely before Almighty God. It's not leaving them to figure it out on their own, or to be told and molded by others or by the hard knocks of life. It's using every method, every opportunity to train, 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 24-7, 6,500 days or more. One of the most intense fulfilling of the great commission that there is to make disciples and train them to follow Christ from the ground floor of life when they have absolutely nothing for two decades, taking most of a parent's time, strength, and focus. But Paul Tripp reminds us, what leads to significant personal change? And think for, first and foremost about your own life before you think about changing your children's. And we might just also say, what does daily repentance look like? 10,000 moments of personal insight and conviction, 10,000 moments of humble submission, of foolishness exposed and wisdom gained, of sin confessed and forsaken, of courageous faith, of obedience, 10,000 times of forsaking the kingdom of self and running toward the kingdom of God. Elsewhere, Tripp puts it more bluntly, change is a process, not an event. And while God holds children very accountable 
for how well they listen and obey. And every child and every teenager and every youth in here needs to hear that. And we'll look at some scary verses toward the end. God equally holds parents accountable for how well they invest themselves in teaching, training, modeling, and ingraining everything to unbind the folly that's naturally in children's hearts. So parents, in light of everything you're teaching, you'd better be teaching them everything about God, the gazillions of truths about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in their glorious ways. Constantly explaining the gospel and bringing it into play in your home. Teaching them all of God's word, the whole counsel of God. Not leaving that to others, but asking others to come along and heap on to what you are doing as well. And teaching them all that Proverbs teaches as well. And Chap Bettis had, a, I think, a good instruction here. Don't just think, oh, this is what my child needs to learn. First think, how do I need to learn this for this moment in my life? And then think, how have I learned this truth over my lifetime? Then you're ready to ask, how does my child need to learn this at this stage of his life? And while there are many specific areas we train our children in, basically every aspect of life possible, we are to spend our time primarily focused on the, spir <clears throat> excuse me, the spiritual training, most important and really should inform and shape and be the context for all other things, academically, athletically, socially, business-wise, all the other ways that they are to live life. And dads, you'd better devote far more of yourself and your energies and your prayers and your passions to teaching your children spiritual truths than you ever do. School subjects, sports, music, you name it, skills, hobbies, money, business, work, anything else. All of those really should be happening under the context and the umbrella of God and the fear of God. Bruce Ware, we want our children to realize from their very earliest years, but I'm going to emphasize all the way through and sometimes most importantly in their adolescence and teen years, how much they need God. He went on to say, we do not want our kids growing up thinking how great I am. We want our kids growing up thinking how great God is. We all need so much to understand how little we are, how weak we are, and how foolish we are. And now back to the second half of Proverbs 15 or 22, 56. Even, or we might read that so much so, or so deeply ingrained your training, that even to the extent of their old age, all the way through their life, everything that they'll ever encounter, they won't depart, stray, wander, leave, reject. That's the goal of our training, that we work and work and work, not just for the years while they're in our home, certainly not just for the moment or that particular season that may be trying, but ultimately that it will hold, uh, we will set them on the firmest, longest lasting trajectory in the first fourth of their life for the last three fourths of their life, and that it will hold course no matter what comes against it. Training them so that they become parents who parent the next generation to follow our God as well. Now, 
I think in the email I said one particular facet of parenting that Proverbs repeatedly stresses. I think I'm going to slip in a second one as well, but it'll be very brief. But let's go back to Proverbs 22:15. The second half of that, after it tells us folly is bound up in the heart of a child, it then says that the rod of discipline drives folly far from a child. Proverbs 13:24 reinforces this. Whoever spares the rod... And let's note there that this is figurative language, as Proverbs often does. For example, we're going to see a proverb that says that children who curse their parents will have their eyes eaten out by the ravens. So you can take that literally, that every child who does that is going to die by that. Or you can see that the figurative language of Proverbs here is emphasizing that, it w- that the Christian life is a life of discipline and self-control, the denying of self, Using the language from Ephesians 5 the last three Sundays, the putting off and the putting on. That that rod is not hit, hit, hit until they do what you want them to. But it's a symbol for a wide range of training that exerts loving pressure and opposition to the way they may want to go in order to correct and straighten. So trying to think of word pictures here. I never am very happy with the ones I come up with. With, I prefer to read them in other people's books and go, oh, that's really good. Putting braces on teeth that are crooked and not growing in right, that you do it while you're young generally, and all of you have had braces as adults perhaps nod with that, so that it benefits them for the millions of times that they will use their teeth after that. So our children have lots of spiritual crookedness, all kinds of teeth growing the wrong way or not quite right. And our training over time, like braces, slowly and sometimes painfully straighten those out, bring them into union, tie them all together so that they benefit for the rest of their lives. And the warning in 1324 is to spare that discipline, that, those braces, to either ignore it, look the other way, not want to deal with it, think the discipline is too, you don't want to be too harsh, you don't want to damage them for life, and there certainly, certainly is danger in that that we have to be careful of. But the warning here is to do nothing or to err to the side of leniency is actually a hatred of your child. And that the loving ones are diligent, or in a quote that we'll see later, the more loving the parent, the more they attend to discipline with great care. Now, there are more Proverbs that reinforce this. You can see them on the screen. Strong language, because it is so important to God. You don't see in Proverbs nearly the emphasis on love. So part of the benefit of reading Deuteronomy 6 was it starts with loving God with all of your heart, and then loving is expressed through teaching and training. But Here, over and over, Proverbs is driving that home, particularly in the latter half of the book as they develop and grow and have all uh, a greater and greater understanding of the responsibility. Ephesians 6 captures this as well in verse 4. The last thought is that we are to bring our children up or train them in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. In other words, when someone is permitted to do what is right in their own eyes or in the eyes of this world with little regard for what God has to say, when that plays out over time, 
it will break a parent's heart. It won't lead to gladness. It will lead to many, many, many tear-stained nights. Now, I think most helpful here is to see that God creates a family of all those who follow him, and he is the perfect father of that family, and we all function even as adults, as children of God within the household of God, being disciplined and cared for by our Father with perfect love, perfect compassion, perfect patience, perfect immediacy, perfect teaching, training, discipline, and discipling of each one of us. So early in Proverbs, in chapter 3, it tells us one of the early lessons, don't despise, don't resent God when he does bring discipline upon you in whatever form and shape that is, but none of us has been physically spanked by God, but to be, or to be weary of his reproof because the people God loves, the, the sons and daughters that God delights in, he reproves them, he corrects them. Hebrews 12 really unpacks this. So verse, wait, go back one. Verses five and six, thank you, are a paraphrase of what you see in Proverbs 3. So capturing the same idea, but then the writer of Hebrews goes on. Now, next slide. And nine times, both previous slide and this one, discipline is mentioned in this section of Hebrews 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord or of your heavenly Father, nor be weary when reproved by him, for he disciplines the one he loves, chastises every son or daughter whom he receives. That is part of the package of following him. He knows that we will need it. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And then it goes on to compare them, what God is doing to earthly fathers. So earthly fathers, we are to imitate the way that God disciplines and works as we look at our own life. And, he, and we see it in other examples throughout life as well. And then it circles around to say, shall we not be more subject to the father of spirits and live? Our earthly fathers disciplined for a short time as it seemed best to them. They were trying their best. They weren't perfect creatures by any means. But our perfect heavenly father disciplines us always for our good, never for our harm, never for selfish reasons, that we may share his glory. And in the moment, Discipline is always painful rather than pleasant, but later, huge word, later, often over years, perhaps decades, the peaceful fruit of righteousness is born to those who are trained by it. God disciplines us as parents to help us understand how to wisely and faithfully discipline our children and to do so as God does even with us. A parent is a child of God who is working with a child in order to get him also to be a loved child of God. Charles Bridges reminds us here, but the point of the proverb is that folly is bound up in the heart of a, every human being, and it is in the heart. It's the hardest place to reach, the hardest place to change. We know that from our own lives, let alone from our children's lives. So the likelihood of discipline being needed, the likelihood of anybody being able to raise a child without ever once having to do anything disciplinary, probably not realistic. 
It'll inevitably be a part of your training. But mix and do that and carry that out faithfully within the context of everything else. A few thoughts on that from others just to perhaps help unpack this. Charles Bridges, the rod is medicine, not food. And here he's speaking of the physical punishment. The remedy for occasional diseases of the Constitution, not the daily regiment for life and nourishment. To convert medicine into daily food gradually destroys its remedial quality. Don't force the child to fit a single disciplinary method or strategy you have that, some, that worked for somebody else. Find methods to fit your, each child uniquely. Use the stronger forms sparingly. Don't lead with them. Don't overuse them. I think that's what the New Testament really unpacks is bring them up in, this, in the instruction and discipline of the Lord, but don't provoke them and don't provoke them, Ephesians says, to anger. In other words, don't train your child with such discipline that rather than helping them understand God rightly, it actually makes them angry toward you, toward God, perhaps toward everybody. Again, Savaggio. Whoop, it's coming. Bruce Waltke. Loving parents seek to correct the faults of their children because their children's lives, favor, protection, healing, dignity, and prosperity are at stake. Bridges again. Our character, now speaking as adults, largely takes form of that mold into which our early years were cast. If the crooked shoots of self-will and disobedience are not cut off, their rapid growth and rapidly growing strength will greatly increase the future difficulty of bending them. Savaggio, how easy it is to ignore a small child's act of sin and rebellion, how simple to favor a short-term peace over the time and effort necessary to correct and teach. But to build a habit of these compromises is to prefer yourself and your momentary comforts over the entire span of your child's life. Wise parents act on the truth that unchecked childhood disobedience will have long, long, lifelong consequences. A home that is largely lawless is a train wreck, but a home that is largely graceless is too. God, help us to find that balance. God has not given us children to make us proud of them and their accomplishments. He has given us children to humble us and sanctify us and them. He has not given us children so we worship them. He has given us them so we worship him. He's not given us children so we boast and brag about them. He's given us children so we beg and pray and work. He hasn't given us children to put our identity in. He hasn't given us children to find our fulfillment in. The fear of the Lord and integrity and a home that blends those wisely with discipline and love and grace. And probably most of us who are parent wished we had another run at that. But we still wouldn't do it perfectly or even close. Maybe just a little bit better. Maybe not. One other aspect that showed up Quite significantly, there's more Proverbs than this on it. Just want to briefly note it, and this is a word to children, which is every single one of us in this room. None of us are devoid of parents and how we view them. So sometimes these words are as significant to adults as they are to children. He who does violence to his father and chases away his mother. 
is the son who brings shame and reproach. 2020, if one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. 2824, whoever robs his father or mother and says, that's no transgression, we're family, is a companion to a man who destroys. And then an intriguing one and a scary one. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. So with that, let's come to the Lord's table. I didn't think about how that verse ends and then we're going to gather around the Lord's table. But I wanted to just insert those. Don't have time to unpack them. Uh, but simply that God puts a lot on parents, but God also defends them and stands for them and, re- and calls children, regardless of the quality of their parents, to follow and obey. Now, some of these meditations this morning on the Lord's table are a little more family-oriented, but I would encourage you in light of everything we've seen, as well as just what's going on in your life, to to make application at the Lord's table for whatever. But a few thoughts just on family and parenting. Despite all that Christ has done for us and all that our Father, Heavenly Father, models for us, we remain very imperfect parents, still with a lot of sin, a sin that that profoundly impacts our families. Even our best attempts at living out today's verses, as many of us are trying, are marred by our remaining sin. So here's a reminder as we come to the Lord's table. We so need Jesus. We know so need his sacrifice and his payment for our failures as parents. We need his body broken for us. We need his blood shed for us to atone for our familial sins, to heal the wounds. Christ died so we could be fully forgiven of all that we have done wrong and of all that others perhaps have done wrong against us and to be healed of all of that. But he's also died so that we, in turn, can forgive those who have sinned horribly against us, perhaps, and to be freed from the bondage of resentment and bitterness. Aaron Garriott says, we must be quick to repent being especially careful with sins that have so easily entangled our family members in the past. Our sins, if not mortified, will affect our children. Sin has direct consequences for those who commit it, but it can also have indirect consequences for those around us, i.e. our family, and future generations of our family. So let's come to the cross, to Jesus' body and blood this morning. Confessing our familial sins and failures to God. Confess them as we need to our children, perhaps to our spouse, perhaps to our parents. And I would encourage you to others who will pray for you and follow up with you and walk with you and disciple you and hold you accountable. Scott Sauls, the first step in becoming like Jesus is acknowledging how unlike Jesus we are. We must not try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. That's the last thing we want to do out of Proverbs. Rather, we must realize we don't even have boots. We must not entirely think we have problems. Rather, we must understand that we are our own biggest problem, our own worst nightmare, our own worst enemy. 
God call, God's call in our lives then is first and foremost not a call to action, but a call to brokenness and contrition, from which action will then flow. For a broken and contrite heart, God will not despise. Final thought, Tim Chester, the key to change is continually returning to the cross. A changing life is a cross-centered life. At the cross, we see our hope, our life, our resources, our joy. At the cross, we find the grace that is enough, as we sang, the power, the delight in God we need to overcome sin. If we don't come to the cross again and again, we'll grow distant from God, disconnected from his power, indifferent to his glory. And that is a recipe for sin.